mindfulness is something like present moment awareness that welcomes all experience without preconception or judgment, accepts what is with curiosity and compassion. And welcome to this episode of The Circled Square, the podcast where we talk about teaching Buddhist studies in higher education. On this episode, we spoke with Dr. Ellen Katz, a professor in the Faculty of Social Work at the University of Toronto. This episode is called Embodied Experience, Living from the Heart. And we called it this because Dr. Katz really integrates both her personal practice and her experience in social work to bring her students out of their seats. She teaches both mindfulness practices and Buddhist techniques in her classes in a very direct and experiential way. She takes big risks, embraces vulnerability as a teacher, and as you develop your own teaching practice, I hope you hear some inspiration in this, in how Dr. Katz really teaches her students to develop compassion for themselves through these practices. Enjoy our episode. Hello, Ellen, and welcome to The Circled Square. Hello, Sarah. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks so much for joining us today. Um, so I wanted to begin with a pretty straightforward question, just to ask you to tell us your story. How did you get here to be teaching at the University of Toronto in the programs you teach? <laughs> uh, it's a, uh, a long story that, that I will try to make short. Uh, I've been a social worker in the community for many, many years, over 25 years, and uh, went back to pursue a PhD because our agency wanted a closer connection with the university. And we needed a PhD social worker. Mm -hmm. uh, I was able to fulfill that commitment. And at one point, it made sense for me to relocate to the university rather than to stay in the agency. So I've been in the university about five and a half or so years and still have a tie to the agency. In fact, teach a course there. Great, great. Um, what agency is this, by the way? Uh, this is the former Hinks Delcris Center that is now called the Sick Kids Center for Community Mental Health. Oh, okay. Wonderful. Can you tell us a bit about what you teach? What do you teach? Sure. I teach uh, direct practice courses in social work. I teach these courses to first year MSW students. And they are about learning how to do the practice of social work. In the second year, I teach a mindfulness course. It's mm -hmm. an elective mm -hmm. for students who are interested in studying how to take mindfulness into direct practice. And I teach this undergraduate course that you mentioned at New College for uh, senior students, third or fourth year, uh, who are interested in learning about mental health interventions that are informed by mindfulness. I also teach a family therapy course that I teach at the agency where I used to work. We take our social work students there to follow a family live and learn about family therapy. Wow. How long do they follow a family for? We follow the family for the semester. It's about a 10 session intervention with the family. The students watch uh, the live work that I do with the family. We discuss it. So to launch in a bit further, I mean, mindfulness is a topic that we hear about a lot now, but it, we don't often get definitions for. But how do you define mindfulness for your students or for the purpose of your teaching? I start out by saying there is no unified 
definition of mindfulness. And because I come to teach mindfulness from a Buddhist perspective, I try to integrate Eastern and Western definitions of mindfulness. So I tell them that uh, mindfulness is something like present moment awareness that welcomes all experience without preconception or judgment, accepts what is with curiosity and compassion. And I take that from Diane Gehart's textbook on mindfulness and acceptance and couple and family therapy. And then I say, but that's not enough. Mm. Because from a Buddhist perspective, we bring in the concepts of sati and smriti, which have to do with memory and the, the fact that the mind is a very conditioned phenomena. And so as we are engaged in present moment awareness, we're doing so through the filter of the past. And we have to keep that in mind in terms of looking at acceptance without uh, judgment, with compassion. And we spend the rest of the semester taking that apart and learning a bit about how to do that. Is this very new for many of your students? Is this a pretty new perspective? Yeah, This perspective, yes, because... Um, many of our students, especially those who take this course, are interested in mindfulness, have some exposure to it. Although I do get the odd student with no exposure who has just a curiosity. And so this way of integrating the Buddhist concepts is very different for them. So tell us a bit more about your students. Who are you teaching in these classes? Who's coming to you mostly? What are they what are they like? What's the experience that you see has shaped them to get into these classes that you're teaching? Well, it's interesting because I've been able to have an impact on the curriculum as a whole mm-hmm. in social work and I'm uh, very excited about that, very happy about it. We now introduce mindfulness at uh, a pre first year conference that we teach. So I give a short introduction and we introduce it to all the incoming first year students who are in our two-year program when we have a weekly, very short mindfulness segment in a course that they all have to take. So they know a little bit about mindfulness. We also do a half-day workshop on mindfulness and self-compassion. All of this because we have come to know that if we're going to help students be engaged in direct practice, they need to learn how to attend, how to be present, how to use themselves. And mindfulness in the Western way of looking at it is a wonderful anchor for that. Therefore, the students know the basics in that sense. They are more curious when they come to take the mindfulness course. They want more uh, more knowledge about the theory and how to use it with clients. Mm, mm-hmm. And is that what direct practice means is using yes. with clients, like yes. working directly with people rather than, I don't know, what's the alternative to direct practice? Writing? Indirect practice yeah. or community work. So oh. indirect practice uh, being perhaps policy work, macro structural work, community practice being the roots of social work, mm. uh, creating change in the community, neighborhood houses, um, mm. after mm-hmm. school activities. Okay, okay. 
interesting. It's so different than anything I've ever studied. So it sounds really cool. <laughs> it is. So it sounds like in your teaching of mindfulness with students, especially in social work, you're seeing it as a tool that they can then apply and use, right? Partly, although I don't like the word tool set. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've had especially in my time in the community as a social worker, uh, people come to me and say, can you teach me the technique of mindfulness so I can use it with Mm -hmm. clients? And I say, I will teach you the techniques of mindfulness if you will commit to regular practice of mindfulness, Mm -hmm. because mindfulness really isn't a technique. It's a Mm -hmm. process Mm -hmm. and you are the tool. The other thing I find with students who come to take these courses, whether the new college or the graduate, is that a lot of them are looking for their own way of being present in their own life. Mm. And my guess is that most of what they take away is that from anecdotal feedback. It is so touching to hear them say as the semester goes on that I don't get as um, emotional, as reactive as I used to be, that I can be much more present and aware in all situations in my life. And you know what? That really is my objective. Mm, That's a good objective. So we've heard about how you became a teacher of social work and, and psychology. How did you, what's your encounter with Buddhism? Where does that start in the journey for you that brings you to this moment? That's always an interesting story because in the world in which I live, uh, as a social worker, most people come through mindfulness-based stress reduction or mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, but I come through Buddhism. I think I've always been a person interested in uh, larger pursuits and meaning. Uh, What is the meaning of being a human being? So I started reading about Buddhism. I started actually from a Jewish perspective, reading a book called The Jew and the Lotus Mm. uh, about a group of rabbis uh, who were invited to speak with the Dalai Lama who wanted to learn to live in exile. And that really caught me. I knew some of those rabbis. And as I read the book, I thought there's so much that's similar between Judaism and Buddhism. I started to read about Buddhism. Then I thought, this really isn't a reading thing. You have to practice this. Mm. Where can I find a place in Toronto that I could try this out? Mm. So I looked up and I found the Toronto Zen Center. I went to an introductory workshop there, Mm -hmm. sat next to the only other mental health professional in the room. We started a wonderful conversation, which led to many years of working together on how to use this stuff with Mm -hmm. clients. And I spent 10 years studying at the Toronto Zen Center. Mm. I'm not a student there anymore. I've searched and found a home in Tibetan practice. Mm. Interesting. It sounds like the initial interest then was kind of Tibetan practice, then time it with Zen practice and then back to Tibetan practice. No, way, it started with Zen, Zen because okay, with only because that's where I found a place to try it out. Sure. Sure. And what, what did you feel was the big difference for you? I'm just curious. I mean, it's not totally connected to teaching, but for what was the big difference for you in practice between Japanese Zen and Tibetan Buddhism when you went from one to the net to the other what changed my um childhood friend who i've known 
since we were preschoolers, Mm -hmm. is a longtime Tibetan practitioner. When I started practicing Zen, she looked at me and said with great expression, but you're practicing Buddhism without the instructions. (laughs) Zen doesn't have the instructions, which I didn't understand for many years. But I then came to understand that facing the wall, feeling up against the wall, uh, and even with a wonderful teacher felt that I needed more instruction. Mm -hmm. So coming to Tibetan practice, I have found uh, the instructions, a much more detailed description of how to practice, what to practice, and steps uh, to, to a very deep level of practice. So in sharing that with your students, how do you choose to share it? What kind of like, I don't know, access can you open for them in the context of your courses? It's a very good question and a very complex question. And the more I move more deeply into Tibetan practice, the harder it is for me to answer that question. I also realize that students are coming from a Western perspective and they really are coming for mindfulness. And I see more and more the difference Mm -hmm. between mindfulness and Buddhist practice. Mm -hmm. I do introduce some Tibetan practices in the lineage in which I practice. Mm -hmm. I specifically describe them Mm -hmm. as Buddhist practices that are different from mindfulness practices. Mm -hmm. I give lots of uh, opportunities for exit. Don't do this practice if it feels awkward. Don't do this practice if you are being very triggered in a way that is alarming for you. I am very happy and would like to speak with you if those things happen. Feel Mm -hmm. free to leave the room at any time. And I do some um, discussion of trauma and how either mindfulness or meditation can bring up traumatic responses, which is why uh, we need to be very respectful of what the body is telling us. Of course. Yeah. And and when you say the lineage I come from, is that Dzogchen or what kind of it's, practice um, it's, lineage? It's uh, Reggie Ray's um, Dharma Ocean community mm-hmm. that originally was founded by Chogyam Trungpa that originally was Shambhala, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. he has added his own, um, I don't want to say spin, Mm -hmm. but he has taken it in a different direction that is so helpful uh, for me in both my own practice and in my teaching. So to get back to what you were saying about trauma and the way that mindfulness or and meditation and practice can bring up trauma. Yeah. There's a a kind of danger there too, right? For students. Yes. How do you manage that? I'm very thankful to be a social worker. Uh, I have also taken training in trauma, uh, informed therapy, trauma-based therapy, and I have studied neuroscience. Mm. I am so lucky to be able to integrate all of this. I, in both courses, the mindfulness uh, graduate course and the undergrad new college course, I teach a segment on neuroscience and the structure of the mind that I am able to wonderfully integrate with the Buddhist concepts around the structure of the mind. I find this so exciting. So we talk about from a Western perspective, trauma and a um, phenomenon called the window of tolerance, Mm -hmm. where uh, from a mindfulness 
perspective, the window of tolerance is being able to mindfully report our experience, whether that is joyful or distressing or traumatic. And I teach about defenses uh, and how we leave the window of tolerance. We may become fearful. We may become um, closed down. Uh, we spend quite a long time talking about neuroscience and its integration with the Buddhist concept of the mind. Mm. So I tell them when the responses they're experiencing are outside the window of tolerance, mm. that's a signal to stop. When you, when you say the Buddhist concept of the mind, how do you explain that to them? Because there are also sort of different yes. approaches. And I will not claim to be an expert. I mm. will claim that I am still learning and studying myself. Mm -hmm. We talk about the five skandhas. Mm -hmm. Great. And the five skandhas are, you can, for, for my, for my sweet aunt, who's probably listening, what are the five skandhas oh, for hope, you? I hope I can get them right. <laughs> uh, contact, visceral feeling, perception, volition, and a very rudimentary form of consciousness. Mm. And we talk about how there is, from a Western perspective, the opportunity to bring in mindfulness around the area of perception, between perception and volition. This is a very simplified mm -hmm. look That's at it. Okay. And yeah. my plan for the fall is to enhance this even more, uh, to be able to, to speak to it more and in greater depth. Mm -hmm. I like teaching the skandhas too. I do it in art history and religion classes, but I also, I do it, you know what I use for teaching what, the skandhas? What, what do you use? Mr. Potato Head. Ah, so I have a toy. That I bring to class and I pull his bits off oh. and say like, this is the aggregate of, you know, form. This is the mm -hmm. aggregate of now the, the, of course they always struggle though. And I do too, actually understanding how the, how one of them can be consciousness or something like right. it. Right. But still we play with Mr. Potato Head in that class. <laughs> right. So they're not sure how Mr. Potato Head can embody consciousness. They're left with the potato at the end, too. Right. This is a problem. The right. potato itself is a problem. Right. <laughs> <laughs> then we have to, you know, just, you know, hold it on its side and say, no, it's just a piece of plastic. And right. yeah. So and you're teaching of neuroscience. So what does neuroscience add to and as someone who really doesn't who likes the sound of that word and thinks it sounds very smart, but I don't know what it means. <laughs> Again, I won't claim to be an expert. Uh, I've taken uh, a neuroscience course as part of my doctoral work, mm. uh, which required a lot of uh, long hours of mm. learning. Mm -hmm. However, I've learned a lot about emotions and feelings. And what I've learned is that emotions play out in the theater of the body, that they are physiological responses to a very rudimentary contact experience that we have a visceral response to. You can see I'm trying to integrate here mm. the skandhas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we have a very quick perception without, it's not in the mind, it's all in the body about whether we're safe or whether we're in danger. Mm. And then from that come feelings and feelings make sense. Feelings have some, what we call cortical content, something coming from intelligence, uh, from the mind. And so feelings make sense of emotions. Feelings play out in the theater of the mind. And they aim to process a very quick emotional response. Mm. 
-hmm. Feelings get us into so much trouble because mostly they're inaccurate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yet we often act on them, don't we? We do. And react, I guess, with them. We do. So actually my own uh, dissertation was in this area of attention and the, the process of being able to accurately perceive our attention. And accurately perceive our attention means what? Like from a mindfulness perspective, because that's uh, who I interviewed. I interviewed social workers and mental health professionals who used mindfulness in their work. Accurate perception comes with the ability to be very present to our experience. And as soon as it's unfolding, to know whether we are having a, a visceral emotional reaction and how to manage that reaction. Mm-hmm. When we manage it, we can accurately say, this shape I'm in contact with, is it a snake or is it a stick? Am I in danger of being bitten by a snake or is this a stick that I can pick up and throw out of the way. Do we have the power to change snakes into sticks? <laughs> we do. Do we? I, I, I need that lesson. <laughs> Metaphorically, not yeah. reality. Yeah. But yeah. we often think we see a snake. Right. So that's the part of the ideas is halting yourself from reacting to the snake. That's right. I, I like to look at a continuum between reaction and response that when we can be mindfully present We can respond rather than react, or we know we're having a reaction. We can temper through working to bring ourselves back into the window of tolerance, our response, and shift it to responding. Tell us a bit more about how you do this. How do you structure your undergraduate class meetings? Like what would an observer who'd never been to your class, what might they describe or see? This is fun for me. Mm. These two classes in that way are my favorite classes. They're three hour classes. I divide them up into thirds. The first third is practice. We do a mindfulness practice. We don't practice for an hour. We practice for maybe half an hour. Every week is a different practice, and I'm teaching them how to learn to accurately reflect on their experience. So they complete a structured reflection, four questions based in the four foundations of mindfulness. What was their experience in the body? What was their visceral feeling experience? What was the state of their mind and what thoughts were happening? And we discuss this in great detail. Then they talk together in dyads about the experience, sharing what they want and not sharing what they don't want. Then we talk as a large group. All of that's about an hour. Then we have a theoretical discussion where I present some theory. We talk about it together. All of that takes another hour. And the third hour are small group practices where they learn how to read each other. They sit opposite each other, starting with how do you breathe with another person? What does it feel like to sit and breathe with another person? What's it like to watch that person to be watched? And we do some talking exercises as well. This comes out of what Gregory Kramer wrote about called relational mindfulness. So it's about learning how to be really present to another person, whether you use this as a direct practice tool in the field of social work or whether you just learn how to do this for yourself. It sounds 
like hard work though too it must you must meet resistance in students fear uh, fear yeah fear that would take a lot of um openness or yes risk yes <laughs> and again it's stop when it's not comfortable there is no judgment in this class. Leave the room whenever you feel you need to. I am always ready to talk uh, in break, after class, before class, during office hours. Mm. I'm not there to do therapy, but I am there to talk about unfolding of emotions, how to recognize emotions, how to work with feelings that arise. Because from a, a Buddhist perspective, that's a lot about, for me, what Tibetan practice is about. Mm. One of the reasons I moved to Tibetan practice. Mm. The observation of emotions and or the... The greater interest in working with them. Mm -hmm. I can only speak to my experience, but from a Zen perspective, I didn't get that training, mm -hmm. but I get it so much from the Tibetan practice mm -hmm. I do. We've seen, we've had a hard year here at U of T where we've seen a real rise in student anxiety and depression. And do you find that your students, I mean, know of this, reflect about this, want to talk about this? Are they ready to talk? Yes. They're hungry to talk. They're hungry to talk about suffering, their own uh, people they know, their families. I'm amazed at, at what unfolds in their life. And they're hungry to learn about how to manage this for themselves because it's overwhelming. I, again, feel so fortunate to be a social worker in this area. And I feel so fortunate to also be a Buddhist practitioner because suffering is the root of Buddhist practice. And I'm so lucky to be able to integrate both. It's one of the things I feel least equipped for, actually, because, <laughs> I mean, I teach about Buddhism, but not with practice, right? It's not sort of how we do it in Buddhist studies. So sometimes we speak about suffering, but we don't engage their experiences of it as much as I think they probably would like to, but I don't feel equipped to either. So, Well, the irony for me is that I went into social work to work with human suffering and I've acquired the tools from Buddhism to know more about it mm. and a different set of practices to work with it. It is so rich for me, the combination of social work and Buddhist practice and Buddhist theory. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And of course it makes sense. I mean, social work would be one of those domains where the, where the work is to address the ongoing, continuing, real, lived experiences that are largely suffering of marginalized people or, you know, disempowered groups, especially right. and others, right. right? From a Buddhist uh, perspective, it's the practice of bodhicitta. Yeah. What's that? Can you explain sure. bodhicitta for my sure. sweet aunt who's surely listening? <laughs> sure. It's uh, the, the uh, helping to work with suffering, helping to cultivate compassion, helping people to awaken their hearts. And especially in this culture, um, many of us live with very closed hearts because suffering is overwhelming. And in order to cope, we close our hearts. And again, the paradox is that we're best equipped to experience our own and to heal others' sufferings by opening our hearts. So bodhicitta practices are a set of practices that open the heart, mm -hmm. awaken the heart. Mm -hmm. Bodhicitta, like seed of enlightenment. That's or right. The awakened heart. Mm -hmm. 
I like the physical description of it that I get sometimes through art reading. That it's like a kernel or yes. a sesame seed yes. that is inside you. We do some heart-focused practices in the mm-hmm. course. Very powerful. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit. How do you deal with the kind of colonial relationship and history that the academy has to Buddhism as, as a construct? What I mean by that is the rise of an academic discipline like Buddhist studies, which I know is not exactly what you're doing, but what what we're doing over here sometimes, arose in a context where Buddhism was this object that was the opposition to you know, it's imagined other kind of, or Christianity or Judaism or that kind of, those kind of other religions and, and the discourse around it then was informed by these divisions, right. That are, that are of course also hierarchical power structures laden with serious baggage, all the serious baggage that we're still trying to disentangle in our world. Right. How does that inflect your understanding of the topic when you're dealing with Buddhism with students. In terms of colonialism, we teach at the Faculty of Social Work, we definitely look at colonialism, at neoliberalism, not within a Buddhist context. However, the Buddhist literature is is very interesting because we talk a lot in social work about uh, the community, about working together, about countering oppression, uh, dismantling oppression. We talk about what we call anti-oppressive practice. Now, from a Buddhist perspective, there's a growing literature, some of it in social work, that is saying that social work is not radical enough, that social work is still focused on identity and still focused in that way on duality and division, Mm -hmm. and that Buddhism actually can take social work farther that Buddhism can take social work past duality at looking at what brings us together. How are we all humans and what do we share as human beings? We have to be very careful about, I'm, I'm kind of quoting indirectly the literature at reinforcing identity. Mm. And, you, and by identity, do you mean individualistic Individualistic identity. identity. We talk a lot about that in social work and in other uh, mental health professions. Mm. So it's a very paradoxical discussion. Mm-hmm. It catches students by surprise because they have spent a year and a half in social work learning about identity and neoliberalism and colonialism, but from a different perspective. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying you need to go farther. You're Mm -hmm. not far enough. Yeah. I mean, I can see what you mean by the potential of Buddhism to try to disentangle kind of the roots of oppression. And yet the other thing that I have to, you know, I consider and teach when I teach about Buddhist studies is that, I mean, what we see in practice in the world so often fails to do so, right? Humans manage to mess it up, not because there's something, some inherent flaw in the religion, except that maybe there also is or, right? But I, you know, what we're seeing is also that, you know, some of the most brilliant masters were also- yes. Yes. Abusers of, you know, power systems and people. I come back to the mind, (laughs) the the kind of hardwiring of the mind and, and how do we constantly use our practice to try to temper the mind. I wanted to get talking a little bit more about, um, 
somatic experience and trauma? Because I know that's also a big part of your work and your teaching. Yes. So can you tell us a bit about what that means even? What, what, is, what is the somatic base of your approach? When I started out in social work um, fairly early on, one of the books I read was called The Talking Cure. And mental health work has been a lot about talking. However, when we bring neuroscience back into the discussion and Buddhism, we know that all experience arises in the body. And we know that there are somatic markers of all of our experiences that remain in the body especially when those are traumatic experiences, in this case, defining trauma as an event that the mind could not make sense of and that is stored in the body. We now know that looking at mental health work as a talking cure is only partly the work, that we need to start working through the body, helping people who have come to us to understand the body, to experience the body, touching into the body. I'm not necessarily talking about manually working with the body. That tends to be uh, territory that we don't go to in social work and mental health disciplines. There are other disciplines, body workers who do that kind of work. But we talk about becoming more aware of the body. We talk about educating clients to know what's going on in their body, to help them to process, label, and manage their experiences, starting with the body and then bringing in the mind. So like talking would not be enough? No. Well, it, it would be talking, uh, for instance, as we're sitting here, talking about what are we experiencing in our bodies? What kind of bubbling or um, pressing or rising or falling sensations are we feeling as we have this conversation? Trauma. And when you say trauma is encoded or trauma is in the, is something we store in the body, do you mean that like physically? Like is I mean it somewhere? That, I mean that physically. <laughs> yeah. It's stored in our right brain in terms of a neural response. The mm. right brain is the part of the brain that just stores uh, lived experience and we will feel it in the body. We may feel it in certain tensing up of the body, in the way we hold our body. Do we collapse our chest? Do we push our chest forward without even being aware that this is how we hold the body? Mm -hmm. And the way we hold the body is partly the result of all of our past experience. Mm -hmm. So you're unique in that you teach your students both about their emotions and about their bodies. Yeah. Um, this this is often, these are domains that are obvious, of course, when we meet people, but that are so often ignored from an academic focus, right? Um, so often we, we ask our students to relegate or describe their learning experiences as not particularly emotional and not particularly right. bodily. Right. So what kind of, is this, is I mean, this is clearly something you're choosing to do consciously, Yes, but you must have also encountered resistance to this form of emphasis. 
But it's so easy to bring out the neuroscience literature. Forget about mm-hmm. the Buddhist literature, which is also there. Mm-hmm. But the neuroscience literature and the mental health world is in love with neuroscience. Mm-hmm. So it's so easy to say these studies, these articles justify what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And it, not only do they justify, they they urgently propel us to rework education yeah. into working through the body. Yeah. And can you give us some anecdotes then of, of I mean, how do students react to this? This Because it's got to be a very different kind of class than right. they're used to. And right. it's it, it's asking them to stretch That's right. different muscles. That's right. So what have you seen in them? What has happened for some of them? I lay a foundation in the first class, whether it's the undergraduate or graduate class. I talk that this is going to be different, that this is experiential learning. It's transformative learning. We're talking about this kind of learning in higher education. There is literature that supports that as well. But I present that to students. I provide them with readings. One of our colleagues, uh, Renata Wong at York University, has written a wonderful article called Knowing Through Discomfort Mm -hmm. that I assign as a reading. Uh, I talk about, you know, this is not the course for everyone. Feel free to withdraw, no judgment. And if you stay, we will be engaged in experiential learning, both in mindfulness practice and in dyadic or triadic work. Some We talk about the discomfort of that, and some people do choose to leave. Some people stay with some misgivings, and as the semester goes on, I find uh, that they are uh, so engaged and, again, so hungry for this knowledge, theory, and practice. Do you then, though, so you have some, you do this also through some written reflection yes, work, group yes, work? Yes, Um Assessments, tests, are those yes. part of, do you, and how do they look when the work and the teaching looks so different? Yes. I'm constantly working on that in social work. I've been lucky enough to be part of the development of an objective standard clinical examination uh, where we train um, an actor to play the role of a client. And we have students who interview the client. Uh, So in the social work class, that is the final evaluation. Students are uh, demonstrating three advanced practice competencies that have to do with using mindfulness, working with the body, Mm. working with difficult emotions, and providing psychoeducation to clients. In the new college course, for the first time, I changed the evaluation and I had them throughout the semester. We watched different videos for the final assignment. They watched a video that I posted online and they had to describe using uh, all of the Buddhist concepts that we discussed, what the practitioner was doing and the concept of the mind as the client demonstrated it. How did the skandhas unfold for this client? How did the social worker cope with that, manage that, Mm. assist the client Mm. in processing their experience? And what kind of videos are these? You mean they're videos of a social worker interacting with a client? Yes. 
Yeah. I am a challenging experience or something like that. Yes. I'm going to have one made for the the next year's course. Mm -hmm. This year I used online available videos. Mm -hmm. The situation Mm -hmm. was a client who had been suicidal and the clinician was working with uh, this client's suicidal thoughts and Mm -hmm. feelings. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then the one that you want to produce, what's the, what's the missing video for you that you're going to commission? I want to produce a video that is more explicitly grounded in body work in the sense of the clinician working with unfolding emotions and feelings in the client's body, helping the client to be aware of them, to process them, express them, manage them, talking about the window of tolerance. So Ellen, I was wondering if you could give me one or two concrete examples of the kinds of Buddhist practices that you use with students and what you do. I'm happy to do that. I teach a practice that's informed by my work with Dharma Ocean. Not only those practices, but in terms of our discussion and the integration of Buddhism, mindfulness, uh, social work, it's probably useful to talk a little bit about a practice called the 10 points practice. And that's a practice I learned uh, through Reggie Ray and his work and that he um, supports me in, in teaching. So this is a practice that deliberately works through the body to release tension. It's done in a lying down position initially, and there are 10 points that touch the ground when we lie with our feet flat on the floor. The 10 points are the two feet, the two buttocks, the two elbows, the two shoulder blades, the mid-back, and the back of the head. And this is unlike a body scan in the sense that it's not just about awareness, it's about releasing tension, actively releasing tension, precisely because there is so much that is stored in the body, so many memories and experiences that are stored in the body. And in order to be fully present to our experience, we need to metabolize, digest those experiences by releasing them and feeling them as we do that. So we learn how to release tension through the body right into the ground, knowing that the ground holds us, supports us, and cradles us. In working with our clients, many clients have not had that experience of being held, supported, and cradled. I'm not necessarily suggesting that social workers do this with clients, but I'm suggesting that those of us who do the work learn how to feel supported and cradled by the ground so that we can take that awareness into our work because we are the tool. Mm. So in the 10 points practice, you lie on your back on the ground and you start to, is the goal to recognize that experience? We start with a big toe and we feel the tension in the big toe and we slowly release that tension as much as we can into the ground. We work through the rest of the toes. We work through the legs from the knee down through the ankle the knee down through the buttocks, etc. Being aware of the physical tension and slowly releasing as much of it as we can. And we work up to the head. Mm. 
I try to do that when I go to sleep. Yes. I try to do something like that. Can be can. very useful. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Um, and, and do you mean, so when you do this with students in class, do you actually, they lie on the ground? They in your lie class? on the ground. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's a different way of teaching, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And then they write about it. Yeah. And then they talk to each other about it. And then we talk as a group in a share what you want to share, don't share what you don't want to share way. So do you have students who just won't lie on the ground? Well, again, we start the course by saying this is a different kind of learning. This is the way the semester is going to go. No judgment if you decide to withdraw. Mm-hmm. And yes, you don't have to participate, but they all do. Mm-hmm. We do, again, uh, we talk about a reading. We do it through, here. here's a reading about knowing through discomfort. Let's talk about this reading. Let's talk about what's going to happen in this course over the semester when we feel uncomfortable. What are we going to do? How are we going to navigate that? Mm-hmm. How can this be a safe space? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It seems though that that's, you've then really built a trusting community yes. amongst them that yes. they can feel safe to share those things. Yes. So yeah. Is there an example of another kind of practice that you teach with students related to using the breath? Yes. In the final hour of the course where we do experiential dyadic or triadic work, they begin by sitting opposite each other and simply breathing together. Mm. First, they just breathe without watching each other. Then we move into another exercise where they gently lift their eyes to feel themselves breathing and to be aware of their partner breathing. Mm. And of course, they talk about what an intimate experience that is and also what a privilege it is Mm. to get to know another person in that way without even talking. Mm. We then move into talking exercises, Mm. but simply to be present with another person in the breath is incredibly intimate. Does breathing together mean breathing in unison or not not necessarily? necessarily? No, no. That's not the instruction they've given. No, it's simply sitting opposite your partner, being aware of your breath. And then in the next segment, being aware both of your breath and your partner's breath mm. and feeling their presence as you do this mm. and feeling your own presence. Yeah, I can imagine it would be very, very intimate. And It is. My final question, I think, will be about kind of the intimacy and the heartbreak of teaching. Um, how do you, you've obviously often brought students then in a journey with you that is probably pretty transformative for them and then also must lead to a really different kind of like community and intimacy created. So how do you say goodbye? (laughs) How do you close? So one could say one of my very er early learnings in doing uh, psychotherapy was that all of psychotherapy is about learning how to say goodbye, that all of psychotherapy leads to the end. And I view that as so coherent in terms of Buddhism impermanence. 
uh, very few people have the opportunity to learn a good goodbye. I find both in my clinical work and in my teaching that this is central and that it's so infused with Buddhist concepts of impermanence. So there is an intimacy in this course and there, and the students do talk about the sadness at the end. Some students stay in touch either with me or with each other. I always tell them that I'm happy to hear from them, that I'm happy to um, listen to their plans for the future, provide any support in terms of guidance, uh, uh, applications for graduate school or jobs. Uh, so I'm a resource. I'm happy to be a resource. I find that that's a, a very big reassurance for students. And sometimes they take me up on it. Sometimes they don't. Mm -hmm. But it's knowing. I think it's knowing that there is a community, whether you tap into it or not, a group of like-minded people. So it's acknowledging the sadness, acknowledging the excitement of the future, holding all of that in a larger context of, of suffering and the human journey. Thanks so much for listening to my conversation with Dr. Ellen Katz. You can find more information about Ellen's publications on her profile page at the Faculty of Social Work. We'll post a link in our show notes. Remember that show notes and transcripts are available on our website at teachingbuddhism.net. We invite you to subscribe to this podcast through Apple or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. A very special thanks to the multi-talented Dr. Betsy Moss for recording, editing, and producing this podcast. This podcast was produced by the Robert H. N. Ho Family Foundation Center for Buddhist Studies at the University of Toronto. Thanks for listening and be well. Be well.